This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. London 2012. The 30th Summer Olympic Games. The 66,000 capacity stadium was full to the brim for the men's 400 meter semifinal. Eight of the 32 fastest men in the world stood in front of the starting blocks. There was a smattering of applause for the Venezuelan in lane two. The Brit in lane three received a predictably warm roar of appreciation from his home country. The Belgian in lane four fed off the energy of the excited crowd as they hollered for him as well. But it was the South African in lane five who ignited the stadium into a frenzied uproar. Indeed, millions of eyes around the world were fixated on the man in the fifth lane. The starting gun fired and the runners took off. The South African maintained pace coming out of the first turn, but was soon overtaken by the Belgian. Well, this was of little consequence. All the South African needed to do to qualify for the finals was finish in the top three. But then the runners came to the home stretch and the South African found himself in sixth place, looking ahead at the determined runners, including the man who would go on to win gold. In the last 50 meters, the South African fell back into seventh. In the final 20 meters, he was overtaken by the Venezuelan and crossed the finish line in dead last, several strides behind the man in front of him. But then, the winner of the heat, the future gold medalist, turned to embrace the South African. He signaled that he wanted to trade the bibs that had their names printed on them, a sign of the greatest respect between athletes. The South African man then raised his hand and bowed to the crowd as though he had won. The stadium cheered wildly for him. At homes around the world, families sat in their living rooms and shook their heads in disbelief. Amazing, some said. Absolutely incredible. They reacted as such because the South African was a man named Oscar Pistorius, the first double amputee to run in the Olympic Games. To get here, he not only had to qualify competing against the world's greatest, but also navigate the trials of hellacious litigation to prove that his carbon fiber prosthetics did not give him an unfair advantage. Pistorius had become an international hero, a poster boy for overcoming obstacles. But what he would be remembered for was not his phenomenal, unrivaled resume of athletic achievement. 
It was the result of a single night six months after the London Olympics, when Oscar Pistorius fired four shots into his closed bathroom door, killing his 29-year-old girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played and had a ripple of cultural and social implications. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. Sports is built on a foundation of fairness with rules that aim to set up equal obstacles for two opposing sides. So why is it that so many people within this strict moral code stray outside the law? Whether that means they simply break the rules of the game or commit a brutal act like murder, there are an untold number of athletes and others involved with the sports world that wind up in a life of debauchery. Sports Criminals aims to unpack this connection. We seek to uproot how the fame and cutthroat nature of professional and amateur sports can exacerbate and feed some of our darkest desires. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. The story of Oscar Pistorius is one of the most emotionally complex in sports history. In many ways, he represented everything that draws us to athletics. Overcoming obstacles, the triumph of spirit and determination, an unparalleled work ethic, and a commitment to persevere no matter the odds. Pistorius was not just an inspiration to Paralympic athletes, but to all athletes, proving that even the greatest trials can be overcome. The runner also carried with him a confident and light charisma, charming his way through interviews to become a media darling not just a hero of South Africa, but a hero of the world. The attention he brought to Paralympic athletics flooded the community with sponsorships and spectators they had never had before. His humble but confident outward persona and what appeared to be a genuine and authentic joie de vivre made it absolutely shocking when the events of Valentine's Day 2013 came to pass. In just a few short hours, everything the world thought they knew about Oscar Pistorius started unraveling. At 3 a.m. that morning, Pistorius shot and killed his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp, through his closed bathroom door at his home in Pretoria, South Africa. Pistorius claimed it was an accident. Prosecutors called it premeditated murder and cited an unknown, unpredictable, incredibly aggressive side to Pistorius that he had hidden from the media for years. In the story you're about to hear, we will try and present the tragic rise and fall of Oscar Pistorius from the most objective viewpoint possible. 
But what will come to light is the simple truth that it's impossible to know what happened on that fateful night. Whether Pistorius knowingly shot his girlfriend of three months or did so believing he was protecting her, his actions that night were incredibly reckless. Perhaps he was a cold killer and incredibly calculated liar. Or maybe he was so intensely traumatized by the idea of a break-in that he was willing to act on violent impulse. One thing is for certain. At the end of this tragic tale, it will be impossible not to form an opinion one way or the other. Oscar Pistorius was born on November 22, 1986 in Johannesburg, South Africa, without a fibula in either of his legs. Oscar's mother, Sheila, knew her son would need surgery to have the lower portion of both his legs removed. So, when the baby was six months old, she wrote her son a letter, encouraging him in the trials he was sure to face in his life. The piece that stuck with Oscar when he read the letter as an adult stated, The real loser is never the person who crosses the finish line last. The real loser is the person who sits on the side, the person who does not even try to compete. Sheila strove to ingrain this attitude within her young son even after the 11-month-old Pistorius had both of his legs amputated. Six months later, he was given his first prosthetics, and from that moment forward, Sheila Pistorius made sure that, above all else, her son would not feel different. And for the most part, he did not. He pursued the world with an energetic thirst for adrenaline, climbing and falling from trees, launching himself onto motorbikes, racing his brother's go-kart so fast down a hill that the pair had to use one of Oscar's prosthetics as a break. It was moments like these when Oscar considered his differences the most as a child. He did not feel pain as his manufactured leg ground ferociously against the gravelly road. Yet something else became apparent about Oscar's attitude. He carried with him a sort of reckless abandon, an attitude of jump first, ask questions later. This type of daredevil persona is accepted in the sports world. In fact, it's encouraged. But for Oscar, it would string together a series of unchecked behaviors that culminated in a tragic death. However, in childhood, there was little to suggest his audacious physicality was anything out of the ordinary. He took naturally to athletics, and this seemed like a good environment to exert his energy. But Pistorius's childhood was not entirely defined by adrenaline and athletically-fueled outings. When he was six years old, in 1993, his parents divorced. Sheila began excessively drinking as a way to subside the turmoil of single-handedly raising three children. When she moved her family to a smaller home in a poorer neighborhood, she also developed an acute fear of break-ins, going so far as to sleep with a 9mm pistol underneath her pillow. This planted an immense anxiety within Oscar that stuck with him into his adult years, but it was not necessarily unjustified. In the 1990s, South Africa was on the tail end of the decades-long horrors of apartheid. 
the institution of racial segregation that had dominated South African society for nearly 50 years. Despite the political moves toward a more democratic country, violence and civil unrest still rampaged through the nation. It seemed at turns filled with random acts of violence and rife with the brutality of organized crime. Townships lobbied for anarchy. AK-47 sold on the black market for 15 US dollars. Citizens were left as refugees when the fires and violence of territory wars pushed them from their homes. The Pistorius family, even after the divorce, was relatively affluent compared to the incredibly impoverished and segregated black community of South Africa, but the unrest of the country bled into all homes, rich and poor alike, as the tides of reform forced the nation to scramble for any sort of identity. Above all else, Sheila Pistorius was concerned for the safety and well-being of her children, which is why she enrolled Oscar in the prestigious Pretoria Boys High. When she brought Oscar in to see Bill Schroeder, the school's headmaster, he eyed the boys' prosthetics suspiciously. Schroeder politely addressed Sheila. She understood that this was an institution of the highest athletic standard, did she not? All enrolled were expected to excel. Sheila hardly blinked and ignored the man's concerned gaze. Oh yes, she assured him, Oscar was quite accomplished in many different sports. This unfaltering determination and belief that Oscar was just another boy instilled in him an unwavering confidence that his missing legs would not get in the way of anything he did. Oscar's mother made sure that he never thought twice about fitting in and pursuing whatever it was he was passionate about. Which is why it hit especially hard when, in March of 2002, Oscar's father came to Pretoria Boys High to break the news to a 15-year-old Oscar that his mother was fatally ill. Her excessive drinking had led to an incurable liver problem, and during her treatment, she suffered from an adverse drug interaction, one that tragically took her life that March at the age of 43. The news shattered Oscar, but he was fortunately able to channel his energy into sports. He especially took to rugby and water polo with an incredible fervor. Aided by lighter, more aerodynamic prosthetics, Oscar was able to compete within the ultra-competitive landscape of the Pretoria Boys School. That is, until June 21, 2003. Oscar was playing rugby on the outside wing when a pass came in, high and fast. Oscar leapt to catch the ball, but as he did so, two boys slammed into him, one high and one low. He spiraled into the air and crashed to the ground, sending a shockwave of pain through his leg. The drunken fathers on the sidelines drank their beers and goaded. Get up, you sissy. I didn't come out here to watch my kid play against a pansy. Oscar, as he always did, gritted his teeth and stood up. He finished the match and pedaled six kilometers back to his house. The next morning when he woke up, his knee was discolored and incredibly swollen. Oscar knew immediately that his athletic career was in serious jeopardy. 
There are two things of note about this injury. First, it is another example of Oscar's reckless willingness to throw himself headfirst into a situation even knowing his relative vulnerability. Second, the injury put him on a crash course with a sport that would see him making history. As fate would have it, the physical therapist that Oscar consulted with for his injury suggested a very specific routine to regain functionality in his knee. Sprinting. So, in 2003, Oscar began training with a track and field coach. Needless to say, he took to the sport immediately. A teacher signed him up for a race. Which he won easily. Then, he anchored the last 100 meters for his school's 4x100 relay. And posted an almost mind-boggling time of 11.72 seconds to take home the victory. Reveling in the immediacy of his son's success, Henk Pistorius started researching the Paralympics. All the while, Oscar continued to win race after race, posting ludicrous times for a 17-year-old double amputee. Then, May 2004 came around, and so too did some relatively shocking news. Oscar Pistorius was chosen to represent South Africa in Athens for the Paralympic Games. But his tenure in the 200-meter race seemed destined to get off to a rocky start. Oscar had performed well enough that he was set to compete in the men's single-leg amputee division, he was the only double amputee in the entire field. Oscar also had considerable difficulty starting races, mostly because he lacked feet to feel the starting blocks and never quite perfected the proper push-off. This issue came to light as he crouched down for the first round of the men's 200 meter. Oscar was in the seventh lane, a lane he would come to hate because he preferred to play catch-up. In the seventh lane, almost the entire field lined up behind you. Oscar and his coach had been working tirelessly on his starts, focusing on making sure his weight hovered forward and over his body to launch himself out of the gates. This is what Oscar was thinking as he crouched on the track. Weight forward, launch out of the blocks. Long strides, gain 40 centimeters on the lean. Oscar was so focused on his technique that he completely missed the sound of the starting gun. For 1.8 seconds, he stayed crouched while the other runners took off. When Oscar finally came to, he scrambled upright and ran after the group. By the end of the first turn, he had moved into third place. In the home stretch, he overtook second and then first, as though they were standing still. He crossed the finish line at 23.43 seconds, finishing first in his heat and setting a new world record for the Paralympics. Then came the finals. 17-year-old Oscar Pistorius, with a mouthful of braces, only eight months removed from his first therapeutic sprints, lined up in lane five. This time, Pistorius did not get off to a slow start. From the outset, it was easy to see that the race was never in doubt. Many might believe sprinting to be an aggressive and uncoordinated sport, a sort of brutish and unrestrained launch to run as fast as you can. 
The reality is that sprinting takes a great deal of grace. A unique balance of stability and rigid strides with bodily relaxation and fluid limbs. Sprinting has a unique aesthetic from athlete to athlete. The long, tall runner will allow the leverage of their limbs to carry the momentum of their strides, while a shorter, stockier person might look for quick, thunderous steps. In this way, sprinting displays the functions of the body in an incredibly intimate and beautiful way. To watch Oscar Pistorius, even in those early days, it was easy to see that he had a connection to his form that radiated a type of elegance. A powerful but effortless overturning of limbs, at once more electric and more calm than every other runner in the field. Pistorius thundered past the competition, bursting across the finish line at 21.97 seconds, shattering the world record and securing the gold. There was something radiant in the young athlete that day. He hugged his competition and looked up at the crowd, mouth opened in a joyful smile. Those select few who watched the 2004 Athens Paralympic Games knew they had just witnessed the birth of a legend, a once-in-a-lifetime competitor. We'll have more of Oscar Pistorius's incredible career after this. Now, back to the story. At the Athens Olympics in 2004, Oscar Pistorius erupted onto the international scene at the Paralympic Games. Instantly, anyone paying attention knew that there was something special about the way this young man ran. Over the course of the next several years, Pistorius's star continued to rise. He won race after race, carving out a name for himself and drawing national attention in South Africa. The country was desperate for heroes and icons, particularly in sports. Well, for many years, South Africa had an incredibly strained relationship with the international athletic community. Because of the racist and segregated nature of South African sporting, the United Nations, along with a majority of countries worldwide, instituted a boycott against South Africa in all international sporting events. This meant they were not allowed to compete in the Olympics, the World Cup, or any foreign competitions. This boycott was lifted in 1992, a mere 12 years before Pistorius ran in Athens. All this is to say that South Africa was desperate for an international star, and Oscar Pistorius perfectly fit the bill. He was young, handsome, energetic. Though he dominated his field, he still maintained the persona of an underdog. He was exceptional at his craft and charmed the media with a natural and innocent naivete that suggested he would never be corrupted by the limelight. Above all, he was a man who built a life and a future after he wasn't exactly dealt a full hand. This was a feeling that South Africa as a country could empathize with. And, as he kept winning and winning and winning, an idea that at first seemed absurd started to take foundation. This guy wasn't just a breakout Paralympic star. He was great enough that he could compete against the world's top able-bodied athletes. 
So, in 2007, at the age of 20, Pistorius began campaigning to do so, but he was immediately met with resistance. In March of 2007, the IAAF, or International Association of Athletics Federation, announced that they would prohibit any technical device that incorporates springs, wheels, or any other element that provides a user with an advantage over another athlete not using such a device. The IAAF swore up and down that this ruling had nothing to do with Pistorius's quest to compete in able-bodied events, specifically the 2008 Beijing Olympics. However, the timing and pointed nature of the initiative seemed to target Oscar Pistorius specifically. But the South African didn't let it phase him. He endured months of IAAF tests that ultimately turned out to be rather biased as they measured the energy efficiency of Oscar's blades when he was running at full speed, not when he was accelerating, the area of the race where he suffered the most. As a result, the IAAF ruled that Oscar's prostheses gave him an unfair advantage and banned him from their competitions. But this was the same Oscar who fearlessly used his legs to apply a brake to a runaway go-kart. The Oscar that finished a rugby game after blowing out his knee. The Oscar that stood up and won a race after completely missing the starting gun. He wasn't going to just roll over and accept what he considered to be rather rash legislation. Instead, he brought his case to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, a type of athletic judicial overlord. The hearing only lasted two days, and on May 16, 2008, the court overturned the IAAF's decision. Oscar Pistorius was officially allowed to compete in the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Above all else, it was an immense relief to Oscar to know that everything he had accomplished was not because of some technological advantage. Rather, his hard work and dedication to his craft were the virtues that helped him stand apart. Now, he had a chance to compete against the best of the best. That is, if he qualified. Pistorius had been so wrapped up in the politics of proving he didn't have an advantage that he had been ignoring his training. Which ultimately proved to be an immensely difficult task. Pistorius was aiming to qualify either for the men's individual 400 meter or the men's 4x400 relay, but he was forced to do so with a multitude of distractions and negative rhetoric. The IAAF dropped the charade of doing things by the book and openly encouraged the South African Olympic Committee to not choose Oscar. They weakly claimed that Oscar may endanger athletes in other lanes. This viewpoint opens a peculiar but pertinent debate within the sports world, one that has, in one way or another, impacted every major sport we know. A large part of sport, in general, is about the limitations and celebration of the human form. It's a glimpse at what we are capable of in peak condition. But in a case like Oscar's, there comes an existential fear that there will be a time where we can make ourselves better than our physical limitations. We can design our bodies to maximize speed, power, and endurance, and somehow, 
this feels to many as though it negates the purpose of sports entirely. But what this viewpoint fails to consider is that the artificiality of Oscar's legs, what the IAAF called an unfair advantage or dangerous, is something that's already practiced across many sports. Technology has a massive influence on athletics. Oscar, like anybody using top-of-the-line training techniques and equipment, had to teach his body to adapt to the technology and operate with the speed and power that it did. He had to teach himself to run in a different way than virtually all of his competitors. To suggest that this is unfair because of the equipment he used to do so is simply not considering what sports are in general. But in the summer of 2008, the IAAF was collectively able to breathe a sigh of relief when Oscar Pistorius failed to qualify. He missed the 400-meter qualifying time by 0.70 seconds. Pistorius would have to settle for running solely in the 2008 Beijing Paralympic Games. But something was different this time around. Now, Oscar Pistorius had an audience. Pistorius's fame and his fight to compete against able-bodied athletes had brought the Paralympics to the limelight. As opposed to the relatively empty stadiums in Athens, the Beijing Paralympics were packed. Television coverage was global, and everyone tuned in to watch the mythical Blade Runner, the man with no legs who just wanted to run against the best. Pistorius did not disappoint. He pulled off a miraculous comeback to win the 100-meter gold. Pistorius is going to have to do something brilliant inside him. Shirley goes down. Here comes Pistorius. He'll still win it. He'll still win it at 11.18. Then went on to completely demolish the field in the 200-meter and 400-meter, completing a hat trick of gold medals. The man that made the world aware, Oscar Pistorius, completes his Beijing hat trick. Let's have a look at the time. 47.51. He gets his world record as well. If Oscar Pistorius was not an international household name before, he certainly was now. Sponsorships poured in for the 21-year-old star. Nike created massive ad campaigns around him. He was on TV and posters. Time magazine pegged him as one of the world's most influential people, among the likes of South African countryman Nelson Mandela. He penned a book deal. He signed autographs. He was the picture of fame and influence in an incredibly unique and inspiring form. Nowhere was the Pistorius fever felt more than in South Africa. Political analyst Justice Malala said, For us South Africans, it is impossible to watch Oscar Pistorius run without wanting to break down and cry and shout with joy. But some would argue that at this point, in late 2008, Oscar began to change, or the attention was forcing him to change. His friends, people that had known him for years, began to think of him as cold and distant. Where he was once friendly and open with the media, he had recently developed a more brash, standoffish attitude. 
Rumors of his quick temper and passionate anger began to surface. He started a gun collection, bought racehorses, and purchased two African white tigers, which he boarded at a game reserve he could visit any time. Whichever way you look at it, Pistorius was either becoming, or always had been, a figure with multiple faces and multiple personalities. There was the kind but determined competitor he displayed during his races, and the wild, uncontrollable side of him that chased all things fast and dangerous. The side that was easy to overlook when considering his incredibly accomplished career. This latter half was most clearly seen in February of 2009, when a 22-year-old Pistorius was driving recklessly on a speedboat on the Vol River, south of Johannesburg. He had an unknown passenger aboard with him. Pistorius drove wildly, trying to fulfill the constant desire to always go faster. So it was natural that when he swung in too close to shore, he didn't see the shallow pier in the water. Pistorius ran the boat full tilt into the dock and went flying headfirst into the steering wheel as the destroyed vehicle smashed into the shore. Oscar was struck with the faraway sensation of a terrible pain. His face felt transformed, misshapen. He was losing blood at a terribly fast rate. Somehow, he had the wherewithal to call his uncle. He was sinking, Oscar told the man. He probably needed some help. Ambulances raced to the scene and carted the athlete to the hospital immediately. Doctors worked tirelessly to keep the South African hero alive. He had lost three liters of blood and was in an extremely perilous position. It was intense work. They held the life of an icon in their hands, and ultimately they were able to save the star. But Pistorius did not walk away unscathed. He needed 180 stitches, had broken his jaw and several ribs, and crushed his eye socket. The fact that he escaped without brain damage was nothing short of miraculous. The other passenger escaped with relatively minor injuries. Authorities found empty bottles of alcohol on board, but never sampled Oscar's blood to determine if he had been drinking. Perhaps it was that his celebrity overshadowed his wrongdoing, a cold reality that masks many famous athletes from proper punishment. The effect of the boat crash was twofold. First, it instilled a deep-seated fear of death within Pistorius, one he would use as a key piece of defense when he faced trial for premeditated murder. Secondly, when he left the hospital, he had a newfound focus. Pistorius had once dreamed of running against the best athletes in the world to prove that Paralympic athletes could carve a place in the larger bubble of international athletics. If he wanted to accomplish such a monumental task, he would need to train like he had never trained before, to be better and faster than he had ever been. After his near-death experience, he no longer considered failure an option. Hell, he no longer considered failure possible. Oscar Pistorius had officially set his sights on the 2012 London Olympics. 
and he would do whatever it took to get there. We'll see how Pistorius fares in this quest after this. Now back to the story. In February of 2009, Oscar Pistorius had a brutal boating accident that hospitalized him with severe facial injuries. But the crash was a wake-up call of sorts. Pistorius was reminded of his ultimate goal to cross the barrier between able-bodied and Paralympic races. Two years later, by 2011, Pistorius was in incredible shape and running some of the best races of his life. He was competing on the able-bodied world stage and finding success at international events. Then, on July 4, 2012, the news came down the pipeline. 25-year-old Oscar Pistorius had been selected by South Africa to run in the Olympic Games. He would be the first double amputee in history to compete. He was set to run in his premier events at the 2012 London Games, the 400-meter individual and the 4x400-meter relay. The world tuned in to watch the fascinating appearance of the double amputee. Everyone knew that when they saw Pistorius take the track, they were witnessing history. In the first round of the men's 400 meter at the 2012 Olympics, Pistorius lined up alongside five other sprinters. He needed to finish in the top two to advance to the semifinal. He got off to his stereotypical slow start, struggling through the first 200 meters. By the start of the second turn, he looked like he could be out of the race completely. Not that anyone would fault him, simply making it this far was a feat of its own. But then, right around the peak of the second turn, something happened. And Pistorius now should make a little bit of headway into the, as they come off the final bend of the straight. It was as though a switch was flipped. And all of the commentators' rhetoric about Pistorius's famed closing speed came to light. Here comes Pistorius. I said to you that he runs even pace races, and he does, and he's going to qualify for the semi-final. He's done it brilliantly, hasn't he? The South African gained a burst of energy as the rest of the field slowed down. He easily overtook third, then second place. Knowing he would comfortably qualify for the semi-finals, he slowed over the last 10 meters and eased across the finish line. Even with that final slowdown, Pistorius posted a time of 45.44 seconds, one of his best of the year. From all sides, it was a fantastic qualifying run and only solidified his legend. And not only had he been the first double amputee to run in the Olympics, he did so and advanced. If the international audience was wondering at all, they now knew for certain that Oscar Pistorius could compete with the world's greatest. After the race, Oscar's jubilation was apparent. He waved to the crowd with a genuine smile and clasped his hands to his face, holding back a torrent of emotions. The rest of the 2012 Olympics were less exciting for Pistorius. He finished last in the semifinal heat after posting a worse time, and his relay team faced difficulties after one of his teammates pulled up injured. 
But the impact of his first race was felt around the world. Here was an athlete who was changing things, who was bringing equality and excitement to the world that no one knew it needed. Then the Paralympics came, and things got more complicated. Pistorius, as expected, was the clear favorite in every event he competed in. He delivered on these expectations when he won gold in the 400 meter and 4x400 relay, but he failed to defend his 100 meter title, finishing fourth. The biggest shock, however, came in the 200 meter final. When the race gun fired, fellow South African and world record holder Arnu Fari jumped out to the lead. But predictably, by the time the runners hit the straightaway, Pistorius had drawn level with Fari. Only a few strides later, Pistorius was several lengths ahead of the pack. With 50 meters to go, he was poised to cruise into another gold. Oscar Pistorius, is he gonna get, is he gonna, oh, he's been caught, is he? Oscar Pistorius just tying up, oh my goodness, he's been caught by Oliveira of Brazil. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, Alan Oliveira of Brazil burst from the back, overtook Oscar as if he were standing still, and cruised across the finish line. Even the announcer was stunned. Moments before, he was certain Oscar would claim the victory, but the Brazilian's comeback was so sudden and unexpected, he nearly lost track of the call entirely. When interviewed after the race, Oscar had some rather pointed and uncomfortable comments. On live television, he accused Oliveira of wearing prosthetics that were too long, prosthetics that gave him an unfair advantage over the rest of the field. Yes, the very thing Oscar Pistorius had fought against to earn a place in the able-bodied Olympics, the very rhetoric that was used against him for months, he was now using as an excuse for his loss. Needless to say, the Paralympic community was taken aback by the comments. Suddenly, combined with the erratic behavior he had exhibited in the last several years, it seemed like there was a much more complicated side to Oscar Pistorius, one that was concealed through the veil of stardom. For the most part, this didn't seem to matter. All celebrities had eccentricities to a certain degree. Could you really blame Pistorius for using his fame to satisfy his thrill-seeking desires? And even if the comments toward Oliveira were out of line, they were said in the heat of a brutal defeat. We can hardly expect an ultra-competitor like Pistorius to be cheerful in such a situation. Reports of his erratic nature did not fully take center stage until many months later, when people could comfortably look back in hindsight and talk about the signs they should have seen. For the time being, even with the loss at the Paralympics, after the London Games, Oscar Pistorius was bigger than ever. He had run on the world stage. He had succeeded in doing so. He was walking proof that we can all fight for what we believe in. But only a few months later, his world changed forever. In November of 2012, a mutual friend introduced Oscar to 29-year-old Riva Steenkamp, a South African model. Oscar was instantly smitten. 
Riva was stunningly gorgeous and intelligent, with an incredibly light and easygoing personality. So, when he didn't have a plus one for his event the next evening, Oscar threw a shot in the dark. He sent Riva a message. Would she come to a sports award show with him to replace his non-existent date? The reply was immediate. She could be ready in an hour and a half. The pair spent the night at the show, then got coffee in the morning, then hardly left each other's sides for the next six days. Their chemistry was electric, and they came together in a simple and effortless fashion. They were two highly influential young people representing a new generation of South Africa. The union seemed natural both on a private and a public level. But that all changed just three months later, on February 14th, 2013, when police got a call at 3 a.m. There had been a shooting. A young woman had been shot multiple times. She was still alive, but hanging on to the barest thread of life. When police arrived at Silverwood's estate in Pretoria, South Africa, they were greeted by a gruesome scene. It did not take long for them to uncover what had happened. Riva Steenkamp, the famous model, had been shot, and her boyfriend, none other than international legend Oscar Pistorius, had pulled the trigger. The case seemed simple, almost open and shut at first. But at every turn, with every bit of new evidence, the story behind the shooting got more and more mysterious. But the most important question, the one that would soon become the centerpiece of the entire case, was this. Who was Oscar Pistorius, really? This question would plague investigators and the media alike for years to come. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. Next week, in part two, we'll detail the incredibly unsettling circumstances of Riva Steenkamp's murder and try to analyze whether Pistorius was an ignorant, reckless fool or a cold-blooded killer. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Drew Cole and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 